You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane, and uh, I'm joined in the studio by two of my favourite colleagues. I've got Dr. Lauren and Chris KP. Good morning, folks. Hello. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Good morning. How are yes. you? Uh, back behind the panel. Yes, I know. I, yeah. I, um, I was going to try and take over until I realised I did not know what any of the buttons did at all, so that would have been a very disastrous yes. show. I thought, the, uh, I thought the random pushing of buttons was very brave of you. <laughs> Luckily, the studio wasn't on air at that point. Now, look, it's a big week uh, in science. It's uh, Medical Research Week this week, and we've got a whole other guests coming in, coordinated by the Australian Society for Medical Research, which will be cool. It's also World Environment Day this week, and I know uh, Bron and Marinara talked a lot about that, so we'll talk a little bit less about that. But um, well, maybe, you, already, you already have talked less about it. Well, <laughs> well maybe because we'll isn't, isn't every day shouldn't every day be World Environment Day at the moment? I mean, it should be assumed this is correct. Yeah, I think. In fact, if just a few of them a year would probably help. We don't have many, mm. you know, anyway. That's right. <clears throat> don't get me started. Uh, let's get into some news. Dr. Lauren, you've got your little pad there. I do, I do. What do you got? My, my, um, I, my, I was going to name, name it, but I can't because it's commercial. So Triple oh, R doesn't support just, that. Well, you know, what, what I would do is just say one of those tablets one of that those ripped tablet off things. the tablets used in Star Trek Next Generation in the yes, 80s. Yeah. How about that? Well, Star Trek's a, you know, a commercial entity too, though. So, um, <laughs> oh You've the line. That. It's a slippery slope. That star show. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That show with the, with, the, with the bald-headed guy. That's it. That's yeah. it. doesn't rule out any of them. <laughs> Well, the other thing that's happened this week uh, in terms of environment was that it was the anniversary of Carlos Linnaeus's birthday. Now, he is the Swedish botanist and zoologist who founded modern taxonomy and, and looking at you know the, what species and where mm. people where people where uh, different species fit into the life tree of life. Okay. Can't use my words this morning. Uh, and so, anyway, one of the things that happens every year with that... Just this morning. Just this morning. <laughs> you should get to communication. You'd yeah. be good at it. You could do, like, radio work and I stuff. Know, I know. It'd be great yeah. if I could talk. There's a reason um, why your expertise is in the eye. All right. Are you guys going to let me actually do my... <laughs> Probably not. Probably not. But please keep trying. Yeah. <laughs> So one of the things that does happen every year around this time is that there is an announcement of the number of new species that were found in the previous year. Mm. And these numbers always blow my mind. So we have 2 million known species already on the planet. Okay. In the last year, we've discovered another 18,000, which when you think about it, is just amazing. You know, we, we're still finding such huge numbers. Well, given how many we're terminating on a daily basis, well, it's probably good to find some new ones. Yeah, <laughs> some more to wipe out, yeah. <laughs> Apparently, there are estimated 10 million species that are still unknown to us. So, right. you know, it's, it's quite amazing. We, we mm. really have just the top of the iceberg in are terms ma- of what we've looked at. Mainly insects, though? Well, they're actually not. I thought mm. they would be. Uh, there are definitely quite a few insects on the list. But there's some very cool ones this year. So there, um, of these 18,000, uh, there is a list that comes out from the SUNY College of Environmental Science and Forestry that look at your top 10. And the top 10 are always fun because they always have really strange uh, characteristics. So some of the top 10 this year was the Bonehouse Wasp, which is a new wasp that was discovered in China, which okay. actually uses uh, chemical weapons to protect its young. So what it does is it actually gets dead ants and it surrounds its nest with dead ants and the smell and the, the chemicals that are released from those ants actually um, masks the scent of the larvae and prevent them from you know killing the the, um, the babies which is pretty exciting 
Hmm. Um, my, one of my other really favourite ones was uh, a cartwheeling spider from Morocco that they've oh, discovered. Nice. Isn't Very it nice. brilliant? Yeah. So it actually will cartwheel if it's being chased by a predator. And when it's cartwheeling, it moves twice as fast as if it's just running. Yeah. Why an animal with eight legs would not get into gymnastics, yeah. I don't understand. <laughs> you know, I know. Exactly. It makes perfect sense. Um, there was a beautiful um, sea slug. Are um, you sure? Yeah, it, it is stunning, okay, actually. Right. So I actually did tweet it, and I'll get Liv to, to retweet the photo, but it is a most beautiful-looking thing. Uh, and the, the interesting thing with it is it actually um, is one of these photogenic types of animals. So mm. it, it's um, a blue, red, and gold sea slug. It's from Japan. And it actually um, ha- has uh, a, a mechanism where when it eats algae, it produces nutrients from that in, in its gut. And so this particular slug is actually going to open up a lot of scientific mm. research into how these animals can mm. do that. How you can mm. eat just, you know, algae and actually, you know, get enough nutrients to survive. Mm. So um, some pretty cool things. So I, I definitely recommend if you want to have a look at the list, um, there are just numbers of wonderful ones there. My other favourite was a puffer fish from Japan. And you know those um, crop circles that oh, yes. yeah, yeah, on the yes. land? They're also on the bottom of the ocean yes. as well, and they really? never knew what it was from. Puffer fish. Puffer fish. So it's actually the male puffer fish do this dance. And they're extraordinarily dance. retentive about it. Yeah. If you muck it up even slightly, they will rush in there and fix it again. Fix it. It's amazing. Yeah, and and it's but apparently for over 20 years that we've known that there are these beautiful patterns on the bottom of the ocean floor. Didn't know what was causing it. You know, so probably the alien theories would have been out and about, I'm, <laughs> I'm sure. sure. <laughs> but it is really just, you know, the males doing a, a mating dance. Wow. Yeah. Of course, that, that, that underestimates the fact that pufferfish are aliens. <laughs> that's true. That's true. But such cool-looking aliens. They are very cool fish. They're very cool fish. Chris KP? Um, I want to talk about herpes. Um, you know, I think it's high time, Stay frankly. I, well, I don't, I don't think we discuss viruses enough on the, on the program. <laughs> Take so, the gloves off, Bill. So let's, so let's, you sure? So let's, uh, <laughs> let's do that. Um, the, okay, so the story is that uh, viruses are extraordinarily good at getting into cells and making cells mm-hmm. do whatever they want, mm. which is usually, when we think about it, you know, annoying, yeah. if not gross, mm-hmm. possibly yep. fatal. Yeah. Uh, that said, the fact that they can do this, this is a, a skill set, if you like, that we really should be thinking about exploiting. Mm-hmm. And it turns out we are. Um, in the Journal of Clinical Oncology this week, uh, there was a paper published from an international consortium who were basically co-opting a herpes, you know, herpes simplex virus type um, to try and treat cancer. Mm-hmm. So what they did is they said, okay, we don't want this thing to actually get into your cells and do what herpes normally does. Mm-hmm. So they knocked out um, a couple of important genes. What those genes do, or at least one of them, codes for a protein that the virus needs to replicate. Mm-hmm. So now if you get this modified thing and chuck it in a cell, it can't do anything. Can't do anything. As it happens, however, in particular um, uh, tumours, in particular um, malignant tumours, melanoma tumours, that protein already exists. So Mm. if the virus gets in there, it doesn't need to replicate it. It's got it. Mm. And what it then does, Mm. it's effectively then targeting just those cells. Mm. But it's not just the one you inject it into. It will find others. It will hunt them down inside the human body and essentially um, destroy those cells, Um, which is great. And they did have quite a lot of success in treating the actual cancer cells. But what this also uh, did is it triggered a further immune response from the human to start attacking those cells itself. Oh, wow. Mm. So you get this sort of two-way delicate pincer movement 
if you will. Mm. Um, now, it wasn't totally successful, but it was successful in many patients mm. and not just for reducing some of the cells, mm. like years. That's so they're amazing. talking two and three years down the track, which is, and three years is kind of the, the gold standard for remission. So mm. this is a process that is exploiting, again, something that nature has been doing for ages, mm. bending a little bit to our will, but essentially using... Mm the herpes virus to start wiping out melanoma cells. And isn't it amazing what we're doing with viruses now? Because that's how, you know, so gene therapy and things like optogenetics where, you know, the adenovirus is is used to introduce new things into the body. It's amazing. Mm. They know what they're doing. They really do. (laughs) They're very good at it. Viruses are very good. Yeah. Yeah. They have one job. (laughs) Most of them have been around for a long time. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Slow learners, but they've had a long time to learn. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's get off the ground for a sec, shall we? Uh, There's some... Look, this is... uh, I found this really fascinating. Fascinating. The work uh, done by Casey Hanmar from the California Institute of Technology in Pasadena, Caltech, mm-hmm. maybe mm-hmm. um, basically looking at what would happen if... So at the moment, uh, NASA and other groups are looking at the possibility of asteroid mining. I mean, let's face it, we've almost dug it all up here. Mm-hmm. So there's the possibility that certain asteroids have, um, you know, vast quantities of, you know, gold, platinum, um, titanium, you know, some other mm-hmm. rare, rare metals potentially, and um, oxygen, hydrogen, so sort of things yeah. you need to sustain life if yeah. you're ever to, yeah. to live out in space, um, and, you know, ammonia, all, all sorts of goodies. Mm. And the idea is, could you could you mine them? And there's really two ways to do that. One is to send people to the asteroids and to do the mining there, which is kind of pretty tough. Pretty heavy. And you'd have to, would you have to take trucks and, like, I just, you know, I think of them. Take trucks so you can drive them to the other asteroids. Well, you think of a mining field, you need the, you know, the trucks. You've got to put the stuff somewhere. (laughs) Totally. Yeah, yeah. Totally. Let's just pretend she's not here for a moment. (laughs) That's a good point, though. I mean, you you dig something up, where does it go when you've dug it out of the asteroid? Well, you you know, you you wouldn't have to. You you could just attach a small rocket to them and just move them around. That's true. You wouldn't need the truck part. It could, the rocket could be shaped like a truck, though, for the monkey field. That would make me feel much better. And can it be can it be yellow? Because it needs to be a yellow can truck. It be yellow. <laughs> I, do, I hope NASA's listening to oh, my I'm brilliant sure ideas. They are. This is a very long-lived yep. Tonka fantasy. Isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's another brand name. Sorry. Yeah, Oops. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so there's one way to do it: send the guys out there and to actually uh, guys and girls, you know, send them out there and do the mining on the asteroid. Mm-hmm. Asteroid. The other idea is to actually yank one of these out or a piece, a big boulder or something off one of these asteroids mm. off, and bring it back to a, a close orbit, so maybe around the moon or in one sure. of the Lagrange mm. points, you know, yes, these yes. amazing points in space where the gravity from, say, the Earth and the Moon equal each other out. Yes. And if you put something in there, it'll just stay there yeah. forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the idea for the NASA's um, Asteroid Redirect Mission, congratulations, NASA, on another fabulous name. <laughs> yes, well done. Yes. Um, is to pluck, actually, quite a sizable boulder from an asteroid and bring it back and locate it in orbit around the Moon. And this sounds great and sounds like something, you know, they may be able to do as a trial mm. to see if this is a possible way about going about things. But the work that Casey Hamm has done at Caltech um, indicates that because the gravity on these things is so low, I mean, remember, gravity mm-hmm. is related to the amount of mass you yes. have. Because we're talking about very small mass, mm-hmm. then there's a lot of fine particles, a lot of crap on the surface of these uh. that won't be that containable, yes. potentially. And if, if they proceed with this process... Um, this particular researcher has found that um, some five percentage of the um, sort of debris that comes off one of these asteroids will end up in regions of space that are currently occupied by our satellite network. Uh-huh. Now, did some modelling and worked out that over a 10-year period, this debris, let's call it, mm. would cross that um, geosynchronous orbit path uh-huh. about 63 times over the period oh, of a decade. Wow. That is a lot of lot of chances yeah, for the, the odds are high. Yeah. 
by. And so this is, I mean, it's it's interesting, you know, I mean, there's references as soon as you read this work to the film Gravity and so forth, which I think is great, you know, get people interested. Um, But it has started thinking about how you would go about dealing with this problem. Mm. And the, the obvious and quite simple solution, I actually think, is to bag it. Yeah. Mm. Yes. Back to the truck. Yeah. Um, yeah exactly. Yeah. We're not going to use <laughs> a truck. truck. We're going to use. Uh, they're just thinking of bagging these things. Yeah. So literally, just putting a a very thin material around them so that all the dust and crap can't actually get off. But and then, what do you? If they're in the bag, what do you then? How do you then get to the stuff? I mean, you unbag them in space. Do you? You know. Yeah. Well, I think I think you you, you draw them into perhaps a, a facility of some type. You know, um, mm. something small. You know, or something large, even the size of the space station would okay. be big enough to to bring these things in just to see what's in them and start mm. to look at whether it's a viable alternative. But but it's that issue of, at the moment of you know debris and there's yeah. so much crap orbiting earth actually yeah. and most of it luckily is in low earth orbit mm. um but still there's and, i mean and you're right that that's the, that's not a new thing in in, in traditional terrestrial mining but we've mm. got enough gravity here for it to basically fall to the ground more yeah. often than yeah. not it might yeah. get into waterways yeah. but it's not going to be yeah. floating around bashing into things you and, know, and the bottom line is we just don't know how bad the problem is i mean it's like when when neil armstrong first landed on the moon they didn't actually know how much sort of um dust would how be there when they the landed dust, yes. and, and there, there were some people who actually thought there would be like six feet of it, and yeah. they just they just plummet into it and never get out. Yeah. Um, yeah. So know. being the first astronaut on the moon could have been a really really yeah. bad job. Yeah. The footprint's down there somewhere, folks. <laughs> Trust me, I as is the guy. Yeah, as is the guy. Yeah, as he tries to swim out of it. Um, but it, you know, it didn't actually occur that way. It's, it's relatively you know an inch or so. Yeah. And it's, but but we just didn't know. No. And so mm. on these other materials where where gravity is very weak, um, you know, but the stuff is essentially it's undisturbed mm. until mm. we grab it and start disturbing it and moving it around and then we may lose a lot of material Mm. yeah that that's so it'll be interesting to see how this progresses a uh exciting times coming though Mm. the pluto flyby is not far off i tell you what i'm not sure folks there may be nothing else on the show over the coming months but pluto talk Um, it Mm -hmm. may happen anyway look we're going to go to a track and then we're going to come back and talk to our first couple of guests um one will be on the phone from sydney Three R. Welcome back, folks. You're listening to Einstein and Go-Go on 3 R. We have our next guest uh, in the studio, and we also have uh, someone on the line, so you're going to hear some weird sounds, hopefully not too bad. Um, in the studio, though, we have Dr Bridget Lynch, who is from the Cancer Council of Victoria and is the Senior Research Fellow at the Cancer Epidemiology Centre. Welcome. Thanks, Dr Shane. Now, you're um, here on behalf as the head of the ASMR Victoria branch, so the mm-hmm. Australian Society for Medical Research. That's right. Just for those of our listeners who don't know, what, what does the ASMR do? Oh, so the Australian Society for Medical Research is um, the peak body that uh, is a professional society representing all people involved in health and medical research in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, and the work we do is primarily focused on public, political and scientific advocacy. Okay. And how many members do you... I mean, I can imagine there's a lot of people doing this sort of research in Australia. Yeah. The interesting thing about ASMR is we have um, you know, several thousand uh, individual members, but then we have many more members through our affiliate societies. So within the ASMR, we have a number of smaller um, niche scientific um, field societies as members as well. So through yeah. that, we have a great... Um, you know, reach into the scientific community and mm. represent a lot of people. 
Now, not that we're checking up on you, your boss, but on the phone we should have Dr Phoebe Phillips, who is the 2015 President of the Australian Society for Medical Research and Head of the Pancreatic Cancer Translational Research Group in the Lowry Cancer Research Institute at the University of New South Wales. Phoebe, can you hear me? I can. Good morning. Good morning. Now, um, you're actually uh, up there in New South Wales working in this amazing area of pancreatic cancer. Um, Can you give us a bit of a rundown of how bad the, the problem is in Australia? Oh, look, pancreatic cancer really is the most deadly um, of all cancers. In fact, um, most patients actually um, following diagnosis uh, only survive about six months. And in Australia, we, we lose about 2,000 patients per year, the same number which are diagnosed. Mm. Um, and internationally, obviously, we lose about 40,000 uh, patients per year. Yeah. In terms of funding, I always find it interesting when we look at where money goes. So there were literally tens of billions of dollars pumped into the recent Ebola outbreak and dealing with that. And around 10,000 deaths, I think, have occurred for that. By comparison, given the numbers you just gave us of several thousand a year in Australia for pancreatic cancer, how are we going funding-wise? So it's the least funded amongst all of the cancers in Australia. Mm. Um, and, and even internationally, um, our, our ASMR medalist this year, Ashok Saluja, actually also made the point that um, compared to breast cancer, which has been the most funded of all cancers in Australia and in the US, yep. um, which has actually made a huge amount of progress, as you can imagine, most uh, women now diagnosed with breast cancer actually uh, live to five years beyond uh, diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And so there's direct evidence that the amount of investment into this cancer has made a huge difference. And so I think if we can now start to turn our attention to other cancers which have received minimal funding, then we have really a huge amount of hope that we might be able to make a difference in pancreatic cancer. Yeah, certainly we've we've spoken to a number of groups on various types of cancer here over the the years, ovarian cancer being one of the key ones, of course, that's, I think, in a similar situation to pancreatic cancer. Um, Now, I want to move on to the um, ASMR medalist. Tell us a bit about this award and about ASHUX receiving it this year. Sure. So the ASMR um, medal is given out every year as part of um, Australian Medical Research Week. And Ashok um, is obviously um, a great person to receive this award because he's one of the uh, leaders uh, in the field of pancreatic cancer internationally. And the reason um, we thought it fitting to give him this award is he's actually a real example of how sustained investment in health and medical research over around 32 years, he's actually taking uh, unique findings from the bench or laboratory or in mice and they're now in a phase one clinical trial in pancreatic cancer patients showing huge promise. So I guess that's one of the reasons why we, we gave him the medal. Mm. So tell us a bit about this trial that he's involved in. I mean, what, when we get to phase one, what does that mean? Sure. So basically, uh, phase one is actually testing different doses of uh, this novel compound called minolide, which um, he has uh, sort of made and discovered, um, and, and really just looking at, uh, in around 27 patients with pancreatic cancer and gastric cancer, what sort of um, dose uh, is enough to actually elicit an effect. And he presented um, at, at some of our already gala dinners um, some sort of recent results from the trial, showing that around 70% of patients actually their disease is regressing and this is quite amazing when you think Mm. that the best drug we've got in pancreatic cancer at the moment only increases survival by about 16 weeks. So when you say regressing, you you mean going away as opposed to just halting it? Not just halting it, actually regressing. So this is very exciting and very promising. 
Uh, hi, Phoebe. It's Dr. Lauren here. Look, I just had a question. You know, obviously the survival rates are very low. Is that because we're picking this up late? Are we picking it up too late to be able to get in and treat early? Absolutely. I mean, that's one of the problems. I mean, the, the symptoms which patients get are obviously quite vague, such as abdominal pain. And as we all know, we all get that when you have a bad day at work. Basically, yes, the patients actually, by the time they're diagnosed, it's already spread and metastasized mm. throughout the body. And so what it, what's really nice about this sort of trial that ASHOC's doing, the actual compound is able to treat the spread disease as well as the local disease. Mm. Mm. Tell me, Phoebe, where is um, Ashok heading? Is he going around Australia? I mean, I, I'm pretty sure I'm having dinner with him on Thursday night, although something tells me there'll be other people there as well. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, I'm certainly very indebted to Ashok. We, we get our money's worth. So yep. we've already <laughs> been to um, Hobart yep. um, and we've been to Brisbane and he's actually having a day off today with his wife in Cairns. Um, and then we, we head to Adelaide on Monday, uh, Sydney on Tuesday, um, Canberra on Wednesday, and um, Melbourne Thursday, and Perth on Friday. Hmm. And, and how do you go about, I mean, you, you mentioned some of the things he's doing, which are absolutely fantastic, but what's the sort of selection process for getting the medalist each year? Because we've had many of them on over the years from the ASMR here on the show, and I don't think I've ever asked how they're actually chosen. We get a whole bunch of uh, nominations, obviously, um, and and we have a look at, obviously, their international recognition. But more importantly, I think we're actually after, and most of our medalists have actually significantly, their findings at the bench have actually uh, made a difference to health outcomes. Mm. And that's what ASMR is all about, improving health outcomes for all Australians and, and globally as well. Phoebe, do other professional um, research organisations overseas do a similar thing? Like, do So do Australian scientists have the chance to win you know, a US award or a UK award? I was actually discussing this with Ashok and, mm. and there's no, nothing like this actually in the mm. US. Um, uh, there is something similar in Europe um, where, where different societies give such medals where they tour around, but certainly um, uh, nothing that's exactly like this. Yeah. Look, it's great that this happens and I think it's, it is important for us to remember that as part of you know, doing great science in Australia, it, it not only allows us to export great science but allows us to engage with science from the rest of the world so we may only do a small percentage of it but it does allow us to interact with all these great people and it must be a particular pleasure for you to talk to to someone of Ashok's caliber and 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 background given given what he's been doing oh absolutely especially given it's my field as well mm. in creative cancer um and i was actually lucky enough to work in with Ashok uh, a few years ago back in 2005 um, so actually watching his, his research develop over that time. Um, and, you know, really, it, it, it takes many, many years. And when and I'm talking to politicians, I try and explain that, you know, 10 or 15 years of basic lab work is what it sort of takes before you get a good grasp of, of what it is you're working on and so that you do have some chance then to take that to, to the clinic. Mm. Phoebe Phillips, thanks so much for talking to us today on, on Triple R. It's, it's a great pleasure um, speaking to, finally, I don't think I've ever spoken to the president of the of the asmr you're so not worthy i'm not worthy um but it's good to, it's good to get an overview of what um what the program's like have, have you got particular things set up for medical research week yourself um so basically 
basically I oversee all of the different state events um, which go on, um, such as conferences, such as all of our community outreach events. Um, and obviously I travel uh, with the medalist around and we do a lot of media um, during this week and we meet with government officials, which is a really important part of our advocacy. Well, I hope you get some sleep. It sounds like a pretty gruelling uh, week for you. Yes. Uh, congratulations on the work and um, we hope to hear from you again next year. No worries. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. Dr Phoebe Phillips is the head of the Pancreatic Cancer Translational Research Group at the Lowy Cancer Research Centre at the University of New South Wales and the president of the Australian Society for Medical Research. I think uh, your boss did well there, uh, Bridget. Yeah, she certainly <laughs> took on a big part of the program for me. The <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like you just sit back in the armchair, relax, she'll take care of yeah. it, which is good. Um, tell us, just finally before we let you go though, um, what, are, what activities are going on in Victoria that people can get involved with? Well, we've already had some of our key um, medical research week events happen in um, Victoria. We had a, a great evening, invite the scientists to dinner, where mm-hmm. we had um, members of the public come along and meet with some um, researchers in esophageal cancer. We also had our student is that, research... Is that really dinner conversation? <laughs> I think it's a perfect dinner conversation. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe if you're a little squeamish, it might not be the yeah. greatest, but um, it went down very well. So to speak. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Pass it down, pass it down. Um, That's why she's in charge. (laughs) Then uh, our student research symposium was held a couple of weeks ago. It was fantastic and it was just a great day where um, PhD students from around Victoria got together at the Royal Melbourne Hospital Mm -hmm. and we always have that before Medical Research Week because the winners of all the prizes, the best presentations, best posters, get a ticket to the gala dinner. And um, that's a real highlight of Medical Research Week in Victoria. Thursday night. I'm giving up my Thursday for it. Oh, great. (laughs) No, it's it's a fun night. um, It's Game of Thrones night. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, no. You're obviously not paying for Game of Thrones then. (laughs) (laughs) If it's Thursday night. Netflix. No, I'm still in season three. Good save. (laughs) (laughs) Pirate outing. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, people pay for these shows? (laughs) You know. Um, Yeah, so that was really... um, Then, you know, we do have some other events which will happen a little later in the year that Lauren's involved in helping Mm. to organise our um, science in the cinema. So that's something Mm, to look forward to and we hope to see many people there. Mm-hmm. Well, look, it sounds great. Um, thanks so much for coming in, Bridget. And My we've got pleasure. a couple of uh, your guests coming in after the break, so we're going to be talking more about more about the specifics of, um, of pancreatic cancer and what it means and why people should get involved in supporting it. So, um, Dr. Bridget Lintz, thank you very much. You're the head of thank the ASMR much. here in Victoria and a senior research fellow at the Cancer Epidemiology Centre Cancer Council of Victoria. Great talking to you. Thank you. We're going to take a short break, folks, and we'll be back in just a moment with another guest talking about pancreatic cancer. So enjoy your breakfast. Free Triple R. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gago on 3RRR. We have our third guest mm-hmm. today. I've got to count them all. Um, Murdad Nick Fajam is a liver pancreatic and biliary surgeon from Austin Health and a senior lecturer at the University of Melbourne's Department of Surgery. Murdad, welcome. Thanks, Dr. Shane. Now, we, we have a million questions for you because surgery for us fascinating non-surgical types is, mm. uh, is an interesting area. Um, you were saying just before we came back on air that the pancreas is something that you guys just should not mess with. It's something it's, it's very difficult to deal with. Why, why is that? 
Uh, the surgery is quite complex because of the location of where the pancreas is, uh, involves multiple organs, multiple mm-hmm. blood vessels, and mm-hmm. the pancreas is an organ that doesn't always heal um, the best. It, it can often leak when it's joined up to other organs. Mm. Okay. So, and for those of us who didn't do so well in biology back in school, and I'm, me and Chris KP are in this category. Um, <laughs> I did all right. <laughs> yeah, all right. What, what does the pancreas do in the body? I mean, this is something we can't survive without, right? It's it's an organ that's involved in digestion, so it helps break down uh, different food products, mainly fatty mm-hmm. foods. It also produces insulin, which is invo- involved in the control of blood sugars and, and diabetes. It is an organ, if you don't have, uh, you can survive without it by um, replacing its function by uh, supplements to help with food digestion and, mm-hmm. and insulin to help with blood sugar uh, levels. Okay. Now, We've been talking a bit about pancreatic cancer. Um, what, what are those sort of the first telltale signs that someone has an issue with the pancreas? It's often very a uh, late diagnosis. So uh, by the time people have symptoms, uh, in the majority of cases, it is too late. Mm-hmm. But the, the common symptoms that it can uh, produce is that, especially in, in the tumour in the head of the pancreas, it can make uh, you become jaundiced. So mm-hmm. you can go, the skin goes uh, yellow colour. Yep. Um, but a lot of the symptoms are very non-specific, uh, mild abdominal discomfort. Um, some people develop diabetes for no apparent reason, and that. that can be a in a small percentage of patients that can be a telltale sign that something is going on so so why if if i had some of these symptoms why would i present to a doctor at all they Mm. they seem relatively benign relatively mild so that that is the problem that Mm. most of the symptoms are mild most patients diagnosed uh feel perfectly well in a lot of cases yep. mm. um, but others um, it, it can result in unexplained weight loss um, and uh, people can become jaundiced and, and mm. very non-specific symptoms as well so someone comes in they've got these symptoms uh, is there a screening test or something you can then do to determine if they've got pancreatic cancer or is it surgical so most most patients we do investigate the cause we look for causes of abdominal pain but in terms of screening for pancreas cancer uh, we do have a study running in, in, in Australia looking at screening for pancreas mm-hmm. cancer, but it's mainly in, in people who have uh, family members who've had pancreas cancer, right. two or more first-degree relatives generally, or spe- specific genetic mutations, and they have uh, a special test called an endoscopic ultrasound where a camera is put down into the stomach and looks very closely at the pancreas, but there isn't any screening for pancreas cancer. Right. So, so mm, Derek. No, 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 I'm not saying anything. I was going to say, <laughs> I was gonna say that um, following on from what you were saying, that so if, if there's no general screening um, or as, as a rule, should there be? It, given, given it's got really high mortality rates when it goes wrong enough mm. on you. So part of the research is looking at specific markers that can be used as a, as a cheap and effective way of, of detecting uh, uh, the general population. But um, that's quite unrealistic we have to really focus on high risk uh, uh, families and we are doing research it is it is a research area so you just mentioned um, obviously the high risk families and that there's obviously some genes that we know that are involved is it one of those diseases where there are so many genes and it's complex or are there likely genes that we can do tests for Uh, there are multiple genes but in terms of um, 
that the families, most of the patients affected by pancreas cancer, there isn't a specific gene mm-hmm. that, that's causing it. So most of them, um, there are likely multiple genes, and it's really just screening the family members uh, for the development of pancreas cancer. But these are very small group of patients. So only about five to ten percent of pancreas cancers do have a genetic mm-hmm. component to it. Mm-hmm. The majority don't. Now, presumably, when they get to you, this is pretty serious stuff because we're talking about either. Can you section parts out of the pancreas? Is it that sort of organ where you can take bits out or, or do you have to remove the whole thing? So you can take bits out. Uh, only about 10 to 15% of patients that present have operable cancers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So most of them are inoperable and we have to look at other treatment modalities. But the ones that have operable cancers, you can remove part of it. Most of those patients have tumours in the head of the pancreas having presented with jaundice. Mm-hmm. And these are complex mm-hmm. operations. Um, and uh, high-risk operations. Mm. Mm. Now, you, you mentioned just before you came in um, that some of these operations can go 6, 8, 10, 12 hours. Mm. What takes... I mean, I don't mean to be critical. What, 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 what's taking, that? Yeah. <laughs> what's taking so, so long in the process? Uh, the the tumours can be quite advanced near blood vessels mm. and it requires quite delicate um, surgery to mm. remove it from the blood vessels without injuring them. And then uh, once you remove the part of the pancreas, you often you remove part of the intestine, the, mm. the connection between the liver and the intestine, the bile duct, and mm. it's, uh, you have to put it all back together. Right, mm. yeah. Can I ask a really simple question? Um, what does the pancreas look like? How, how big is it? What colour is it? I mean, if I saw one in the street, how would I know? Hey, look, it's a pancreas. <laughs> It's it's not the prettiest organ. Sorry, what is the prettiest organ? <laughs> in terms of what it looks like, it, it's often a yellow uh, colour, uh-huh. yellow and, and regions of white in, in it. Uh-huh. Uh, it's quite a flat shaped. Some people uh, describe it as being more like a tadpole shape. It's got a it's got okay. a head, it's yes. got a body, and it's got a tail region, hmm. and it lies right across the upper abdomen. Uh, the spleen hmm. is near it. The intestine and stomachs near it. It's interesting. So the, um, when I was listening to the doctor's show driving in today, they were talking about that you often get changes in the texture of, of the pancreas in, in sort of early stages of disease. Um, how would you actually interpret that? Can you do that with an endoscope or is there any way to look at that? So in terms of uh, the pancreas can be affected by a lot of things, but you can have changes of pancreatitis so that mm. the organs can become a bit uh, thicker and firmer, uh, but they, they don't necessarily, uh, are, they're not necessarily an indicator of a patient developing cancer. Okay. Sure, mm. sure. Now, how do you? I'm still curious about the time yes. uh, in these operation operating suites. How do you cope for eight hours? Non. I mean, do, do you go off and take breaks, or, or how does that? Work? I mean, presumably you're not wearing astronaut pants. I mean, sooner or later <laughs> someone's got to go to the bathroom. How does this all work in the in the surgical I guess, suite? I guess with all f- fields of surgery, it's something you just get used to. Mm-hmm. If you're doing things regularly, uh, you get used to it. Uh, and for pancreas surgery, it is the type of surgery that should be performed by people doing it regularly. Mm-hmm. Uh, there there isn't any legislation in this country. To, to govern who does a lot of these operations. Right. Mm. But you, you get used to it. Sometimes when we remove the tumours, you do have a little break whilst the pathologist looks at the specimen right. to make sure that there isn't any tumour at where you've, you've divided the mm. pancreas. Mm. Mm. But, but it's, uh, it's something you get used to. It's incredible stuff. Look, uh, it, it's really interesting talking to a surgeon, someone who sees the other side of this, because yeah. we often talk about the research side but not the that treatment side. And as you say, there's so few patients, I guess, that you get to in time mm. that you can actually 
actually help. Um, do, do you bring in other surgeons if, if you find that it's metastasized and you think it's possible to deal with it? Do you bring them in at the same time or is that a, a different game plan you know, starts? When it's spread off and the, the treatment is done, <coughs> most when we talk about pancreas cancer, we're talk, talking mainly about a t- specific type adenocarcinoma. Mm-hmm. There are rarer types called neuroendocrine tumors where if it's spread, there is still other options. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but most of the time, when it's, once it's spread, you just change your operation um, mm-hmm. to a different type. Mm-hmm. Interesting stuff. Uh, Murdad Nikva. Thank you very much for coming in today and um, talking to us about this important topic. Thank you for inviting me. Murdad is uh, a a surgeon at Austin Health and a senior lecturer at the University of Melbourne's Department of Surgery. We're going to take a short break, folks, and then we'll be talking to a researcher who's doing work also in the area of pancreatic cancer. Here's some tunes, and we'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to 3RRR. Uh, we're back. You're listening to Einstein and Gago. There's a lot of frivolity going on in the studio today, perhaps because Dr. Lawrence here. <laughs> we have our fourth guest in the studio today. I think four is about as many mm-hmm. as we can fit in in one day. Um, Daniel Eel. Did I get that right, Daniel? Uh, Daniel Yo. Oh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, you're much better at it than me. He's a <laughs> practiced a few more. <laughs> PhD student in the Department of Surgery from Austin Health and also the University of Melbourne. Welcome. Uh, you're working in the research sort of side of the pancreatic cancer battle. Tell us a bit about the sort of work you're doing and and how that sort of... Well, we, we spoke to a surgeon, so I'm sure it's very different, but tell us a bit about the work you're doing in the lab to, to deal with this problem. Yes, yeah, so I'm working on pancreatic cancers. As Murdad's already mentioned, treatment options for pancreatic cancer are extremely limited and they're not very effective. So I'm looking at trying to improve our treatment strategies and that will come about with a better understanding of the pancreatic um, mechanisms that are involved in, in the cancer. So I, I've looked at, I'm looking at one of these um, proteins. It's called P21 activated kinase 1. It's uh, just a fancy name for mm-hmm. protein. Yep. And this protein has been shown to be involved in a lot of um, cancer-related mechanisms, things like DNA cycle, so it increases proliferation. This is how you get the um, uncontrolled growth, which is characteristic of um, cancer, as well as things like cell motility, so ability for the cancer to metastasize to Mm -hmm. other organs. So it's involved in a lot of um, pathways involved um, specific to cancer, but no one's actually looked at it in pancreatic cancer. So I'm trying to look at it in pancreatic cancer and evaluate its kind of if, it, if there's any benefit of actually um, uh, targeting this this protein. Do, do we know, I mean, I always find it interesting um, how much we know about these particular proteins. I mean, we find them, they're, they're related. Does it do other things in the body? Like, does it have another purpose? Yes, yeah, so it's involved in a lot of other cell types. Mm-hmm. Um, it, so, for example, it's involved in normal homeostatic um, um, mechanisms, so it's involved in normal. But what we've found is that it's not actually involved in pancreatic can- uh, pancreatic um, normal um, uh, function. Function. Yeah, yeah. So um, the fact that it's upregulated in pancreatic cancer shows that it's playing some sort of role in cancer, and mm. that way we can actually kind of makes it a better target. For mm. Now, talk us through the, the lab environment. When, how, do, how do you go about finding this protein and, and knowing that you use the term upregulated? I, yeah. my, my physics sort of terminology for that is turned on. Yes, turned up, turned, turned up, turned up loud. Um, up to eleven. <laughs> now, now, how do you how do you do that? I mean, how do you how do you find these particular very small molecules and see that they're doing this what does that look like in the lab so in the lab doesn't actually look up like a protein at all it's what we've done is we've actually um, separated it based on its weight pair so mm-hmm. how, how 
how heavy it is, and then we can actually detect it through antibodies which are specific to that protein. So I've already got an idea of the protein. It's, it's not finding like a, a needle in the haystack. We don't know what we're looking for. Okay. We kind of know what protein in, um, we're looking for so that we can actually have antibodies that are specific to those um, proteins. Mm. And, oh, oh, sorry, I was yeah. going to say, because you mentioned that this protein is in other cells in our body too. So if you were to use a therapeutic drug to try and... Mm. You stop it there. Is it likely that you're going to have other side effects? So what we've done is we've got some drugs that actually inhibit my protein, and so far it's not been toxic in in our mice models that we've examined. So it doesn't seem to be possibly um, looked at. But it, it's something to consider once we go into clinical trials, for example. Mm. I suppose there's a, there's a trade-off there, though, isn't there? I mean, you've got a patient who is has a cancer that is going to kill them, mm. most certainly. At, at what point does that trade-off become reasonable with, with side effects? How does that process work in, in this sort of research area? Well, I'm not too sure about the clinical side. You probably should have asked Murdoch that. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess it, it's more trying to balance the, the good from the bad. So mm. things like chemotherapies, I've, I've mm. probably mentioned, um, probably you're trying to target those cancers rather than the normal cells and and finding that balance is probably a very important thing yeah now you're doing your phd in this area how far through are you at this point so in my final third year so right. almost almost through so you have to have this thing knocked out it has to be done it yes, to be yes. <laughs> just dawned on me that if you're successful let's assume that this this protein pathway treatment drug whatever you know becomes a thing and is successful you're essentially trying to put murder out of a job <laughs> Does he know that? Does he? <laughs> You're wiping out a whole career pathway. <laughs> well, there's he collateral doesn't, damage here. He doesn't work just on pancreatic cancer, and there's always cases. You have <laughs> well, the thing is, pancreatic cancer is so heterogeneous. So the mm. fact that um, you've targeted for it might only work for certain patients. Yeah, mm. sure. And um, the idea is to get try and get you know a, a cure for everyone so it might be a mm. combination of it so it might be taking out um the cancer so that's murder's job yep. mm. and then you know giving the patients um this drug to get rid of any residual cancers mm. that are left behind yeah mm. nice. it, Dr. i keep interrupting you today yeah, it's okay <laughs> i'm happy to be interrupted <laughs> i was just going to ask you were mentioning before that you were doing some work in mouse model Do, is there a good mouse model for pancreatic cancer because i know that often for different diseases there aren't and that's half the challenge but do you have a good one um i like to think so but i'm not sure if we do because of the heterogeneous mm. uh, heterogeneous uh, manner of pancreatic mm. cancer it's really hard to replicate that in in mice models or even in cell culture in, in the mm. cells so what we've done is um to try and replicate this better we've actually induced cancer in the actual site so in the pancreas of mm. mice mm. which is it's extremely difficult but it, mm. it gives us a better idea because it's in the same site mm-hmm. as what we'd see in the normal human case yeah mm. I, I know this is a question you, you sort of probably always get but what, what sort of time frame are we looking at in terms of getting this through the trial sequence to potentially be clinically viable as a, as a technique to help people um, I've known it's a long process. Um, mm. I know that clinical trials is probably out of my area of my PhD because mm. it's such a long process, mm. but it can take probably about five years, and that's really five to ten years, really, and that's to ensure that the drug that we have is actually safe mm. and, and yep. it works. So it's mm. it's a long process. Mm. Mm. Are, are there other people around the world working on this same particular protein, or are there groups, I guess, 
having a look at different proteins that are also involved? Well, there's actually lots of both, actually. So there's a lot that's looking at pancreatic cancer and trying to figure out um, a treatment option, and that's kind of where I fit in. But there's also people looking at my protein, and it's been well established in other cancers, actually. So that's mm. been a really good guide for me in, in what's in happening in pancreatic cancer. Mm. Mm. But each cancer is obviously different, so mm. having to examine that role in pancreatic cancer is probably what I've been doing. Where, where are you going after this? Not, not the show, I mean, <laughs> the PhD. Personal question. <laughs> I'm not too sure at the moment. I might actually end up being in research or I might go into the medical field, so it's... I'm interested in both. Yeah. No, look, it sounds great. Oh, cool. Now I'm going to get you to say your name so I don't butcher it for the third time. Daniel Yeo. There you go. Is a PhD student in the Department of Surgery at Austin Health in the University of Melbourne, of course. Um, thank you very much for coming in and good luck. I hope the uh, work continues to go so well. Thanks for having me. Well, we're almost out of time. I think we're going to yeah. have to uh, head off. Dr. Lauren, thank you very much for uh, being part of the show today. Pleasure. It was very interesting. Yeah, and you were well behaved, more or less. <laughs> Chris Gopi is laughing. Yes, it was quite a good show today. <laughs> what are you, assessing your, assessing your own work? 14 totally. out of 20, Lauren needs to try harder. That's a great, what's that phrase? Self-praise is no praise. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yes, I, I've always said that very well. Yeah. I, I, I appreciate my pancreas more. Yeah. I really do. I appreciate any um, sort of gastrointestinal problems I might have some more and start to worry more, which gives me more of them. It's a vicious circle. Um, look, it is an area, though, folks, it's very important to know it's it's going to be apparently statistically by 2030 the second most leading cancer problem mm-hmm. um, in the world, and um, that, that's not an insignificant accolade, I have so to say. Our, so our guests today were into it before it was trendy. Yeah, and it's, it's not because it is getting worse, it's because everything else is doing better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and we're not doing enough in that area. So it's one of those areas where a lot of funding would go a, a long way yeah. um, if it, you know, not that you want a famous sports person to be involved, no, but that is often how these things end up getting funding. We mm-hmm. could do it another way by just choosing to, so mm-hmm. maybe we'll do that. We're going to go. Thanks for listening to Einstein the Go-Go. Liv, thanks for doing our Twitter feed as always. I'm Dr. Shane. We'll speak again next week. Remember, science is everywhere. Have a great Sunday. You have been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.